plenty more on the back table that you can pick up. Psalm 5, this is the Word of God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, (coughs) my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let them also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we come to your word and we recognize that it is for our good, it is for your glory, it is inerrant. Uh, It is something we must submit our reasoning and our understanding to, and it is our desire to do so this morning. Help us to learn to profit from your blueprints, uh, which are perfect and which we cannot improve upon. I pray this and that you would grant me a, a... the ability to speak your word clearly to the people and each one of us by your spirit to uh, uh, embrace it, to have it implanted in our hearts, and to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) (coughs) Last week, (coughs) we began uh, to look at this psalm, seeing that uh, all of the imprecatory psalms, really, those are the psalms that call for God's judgment. A lot of evangelicals are... Uh, wimped out on don't want to use they say oh boy that's not something that we should do in the christian church and yet the new testament calls us to sing those psalms and we saw that the imprecatory psalms really are lawsuits at the bar of heaven at the court of heaven now let's just say that satan has been doing a number on you and has uh, royally discouraged you has brought oppression into your life you could sense uh his uh his working and there's been a number of things that have uh, happened uh, to you uh, there's been a robbery of your house, and you've had $5,000 worth of property stolen from your uh, house. And not only that, they weren't content with that, whoever these robbers were, but they trashed your place, you know, and it's cost another 8000 to get all of that fixed up. And then you've had uh, real difficulties like your children are having nightmares at night and keep getting woken up. And uh, you're experiencing sickness. And finally, you're coming to the conclusion, you know what, I'm under satanic attack, and I have had enough. I'm going to declare war on Satan. And so you begin to do so. You uh, confess any sins that would give Satan a legal foothold in your life. And you say, Lord, I put these under the blood. I put the sins of my ancestors under the blood. I apply the blood of Jesus Christ to the lintels of my doorway, to to the windows of this house. This house is dedicated to you, and I pray that you would send your angels and escort any evil angels out of this out of this building and you begin to pray the warfare prayers which by the way if you don't have the booklet uh, that i've put together of different prayers from mark bubeck and some i've written and others uh, i can get you a copy of that 
But you start praying these warfare prayers, and immediately you begin to feel total relief from the attacks of the evil one. And many of you have experienced this. You've said, yes, praise the Lord. I mean, this has been fantastic. For the first time in a year, I have felt totally free of the oppression that's come from Satan's hand. But what I want to deal with is something else. What about the money that you've been missing? You know, the 5,000 stolen, the 8,000 crashed. Can you get that back? Is that something that's appropriate to ask uh, the Lord for? You've given everything that you have to the Lord, and you're saying, okay, uh, it's God's property. If he wants it stolen, it can be stolen. And are you just going to be passive about it? Or is it something that you can take to the court of heaven? And last week, I encouraged you to realize that uh, we can put Satan on notice that when he comes after us, he's going to pay for it. There's always going to be something extracted from his hide because we're always going to take it to heaven's court of justice. And God promised in Luke 18, he will give everyone who so asks justice and he will do so speedily. We don't have to wait till the second coming when everybody gets justice. Now, this is justice in history that he is talking about. And so I've uh, encouraged you that it's important to do that and it's important to call for restitution. Somebody asked me last week, well, what are the different penalties for restitution? And I, on the plane yesterday, I made sure that I had uh, a handout ready and if it's not in your bulletins, there is a restitution thing. That's just for your reference. There's a few other things that you could look at, but that gives the basic contours in which you can ask Satan, if he's taken money from you, if he's taken a child from you, if he's taken something else, what kind of restitution you can ask uh, when you're going before God and uh, pleading your case. And anyway, in the hypothetical situation that you're in, you ask for 400%. <laughs> you say, Lord, if the thief returns it right away, he still has to pay 125%. But here I am. I've come before your courtroom. There'd be a minimum of 200% that would be asked by the Lord. But your circumstances, and you could look at the restitution things and the tape from last week, your circumstances uh, perhaps warrant 400%. And I mentioned that I first learned about this from a missionary in India who used this regularly when satanic attack would come against him, persecution from people, he said, I'm not wrestling with flesh and blood. I'm wrestling with principalities and powers behind these people that are, are bringing this into my life. And he was such an encouragement. And there's other pastors that have begun praying this in this, um, in this city and begun seeing phenomenal results. And I may share a little bit of that. When some members of his church were killed in a religious hatred case, he said, Lord, these are sheep that you have put into my care and they can't be returned to me and in a situation like that exodus 22 verse 1 says that your justice calls for fourfold and so i ask that there would be four new believers taken out of satan's kingdom for every one that has died in my church and the lord had granted it to him uh, when leaders were taken out he asked for fivefold and uh, I said, wow, that's a lot of leaders to ask for. But he got it. And the Lord was blessing and was prospering uh, his work phenomenally. And uh, he wanted the blood of the martyrs to be the seed of the church. And what I want to ask this morning is why should we as the church always be on the defensive? Why can't we go on the offensive? Why can't we begin to make Satan think twice about messing with us because every time he messes with us and we have the evidence that we can present before God's courtroom, he loses. He loses out. It's counterproductive for him to attack us. I think we need to go on the offensive. And so last week, I started going through point number one, which make your eyes bleed, and I deliberately made it small print so you couldn't read it, right? Because we're going on to the next point. 
you got to look at last week's handout for a fuller, uh, a fuller um, a sheet, a whole sheet of point number one. And uh, we saw it's not enough to have some other person bring a case before God. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm going to just have the pastor pray for me and not bring the petition before God yourself. And, and somebody came up and he had questions about that. Well, how, how does it work out, you know, in a case like in Sudan? What I would say is this. In Sudan, there are many Christians who are being killed. We can be witnesses at the courtroom of heaven on their behalf but we can't plead their case all by ourselves. And so unless they are crying out for justice from God, unless they are praying the imprecatory psalms, our witnessing is not going to account for anything in the court. Okay, does that make sense? So we can be witnesses anywhere in the world, but the only way we can plead personally that we've been hurt, we're not in Sudan. We can't plead uh, their case as being personally injured. Anything that happens in the United States of America, then we are part of the tyranny that has come, the things that have been robbed through through unjust taxation and, and things like that. We can go to the courtroom of heaven because we are part of the, the people who have been uh, affected. But when it comes to other countries that we're praying for, what we do is we are praying as witnesses, saying, Lord, we are lifting up our prayers along with the prayers of the people in that other country. We are asking that you would bring justice on behalf of those people. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's a jurisdictional aspect. We're not a part of the jurisdiction of Sudan. We've not been personally hurt, even though we're part of the body of Christ. So we have to bring witness. We can't directly plead for justice, um, you know, as if we were the ones that were hurt. Now, if I'm wrong on that, you guys can correct me and bring scriptures on that. But it seems to me that's the way the scripture uh, lays that principle out. Now, secondly, it must be orally presented. Thirdly, we saw it must be presented by a person who is not guilty of the same injustice of the person who's attacking him. And I think this is one of the reasons why the evangelical church of today is not getting justice in God's courtroom. It's hypocrisy. What they are doing is they are saying, Lord, these people are being mean to me. I want you to give me justice. And God is saying, why should I give you justice when you have cast my law behind your back? You hate, you despise my law. You will not study it. And I don't think God is going to give justice to people who despise his law. And so that's one of the things. We've got to have a loyalty to God, we cannot be in the same position of uh, trampling on God's law and then go after somebody who's trampling on God's law, you know, and hurting us and say, Lord, give justice. He says, no, you're a criminal. If you hate my law, I don't care if you are a believer, if you hate my law, you will not get justice. We gave several scriptures to demonstrate that. Okay. Fifth, we saw there must be a formal, oh no, fourth, we saw it must be prosecuted in public. Fifth, there must be a formal accusation with specific details. Sixth, there needs to be witnesses, at least two or three, that are praying with you. And I think praying with you together as you're presenting this case before God. Uh, seventh, we need to have a case and not bring false charges against Satan or against our enemy. You know, some of the prayers that I've heard in, in the pastoral groups, I, I think to myself, well, where do they get that? I mean, everything is the devil's fault. Uh, in the eyes of some people. The moment anything uh, goes wrong, well, if an individual has brought it, you can, you, you can petition concerning the injustice that's happened there. But don't always assume that it's Satan. Okay. Um, that means if we, if seventhly, we can't bring false charges against him, that means we need the Lord's guidance, right? Eighth, we must show respect and humility before the judge of all the earth. To scream at God and to yell at God, I think, is showing not showing court etiquette, right? 
and, and, and God's just not going to honor this. And one, one of you had mentioned to me that you knew somebody personally that had, uh, I don't know if they were on a jury, but this individual uh, got thrown out of court and sent, he, he was coming up for a trial. He got thrown out of court and put in jail for several days until he could learn to show respect. And I, I, I think the same situation is true with us. When we do not show the Lord respect, we cannot uh, expect to uh, have any answers. And then finally, we saw that we need to wrestle with fervency. Prayer is tough, and doing this kind of praying is even tougher. But the more you do it, and the more results you see coming in, the more excited you begin to be about praying before the courtroom of heaven. And that's why in Luke 18, he says, this isn't just, you know, once in a while, once in a blue moon you do this. He says that people are going to be crying out to him day and night for a vengeance. That's what Christ said. And he says he will avenge them speedily. And, and so th- th- this is a kind of, of praying that we need to get used to. Now Spurgeon said concerning prayer in general, <coughs> he says the more we pray, the more we shall want to pray. The more we pray, the more we can pray. The more we pray, the more we shall pray. He who prays little will pray less, but he who prays much will pray more, and he who prays more will desire to pray more abundantly. Uh, that's not gobbledygook. <laughs> what he is saying is the principle that Christ gave that when you do not use the little that you have been given, even what you have been given will be taken away. But when you do use the little you have been given, more will be given back to you. And so as you engage in the prayer life that God enables you by his grace to give, he pours out more responsibilities, more burdens, more answers, and you're going to delight in prayer more. But that's, you know, when... The more prayerless you become, the more you're going to want to be prayerless. The more prayerful you become, the more your desires for prayer are increased. And I think the same is true of this kind of praying that we're talking about. Now, today I want to show you how we can enter into such a lawsuit with total confidence of winning. So keep in mind the principles from last week, uh, but now we're going to look at the grounds for judgment. And I say grounds because of the word for at the beginning of verse 4. Okay? He's saying... Here's the reason. Here's the grounds uh, for this prayer. And I want you to notice, first of all, I should have probably even put it in your outline, but I want you to notice, first of all, how God-centered these grounds are. He is not pleading his own desires and his own opinions. Opinions don't carry weight in court. In fact, that was an interesting thing this past week. Uh, they were kind of grieving over a situation that was actually recorded on video of the police had gotten a tip. Actually, it was social workers had gotten a tip, and they brought the police uh, that... Uh, kids in this one church, uh, it was a black inner city church, that they uh, were giving spankings to their children. So they were going to go in and arrest the people. And it was just heart-wrenching to see these kids just terrorized and, and trying to defend themselves and being handcuffed. I, I think these kids are traumatized for life from this thing. It, was, it just turned my stomach to watch the video. But when they examined them, the courts had them examined by doctors, there was no evidence of anything, no marks on their body or anything. But they went to court, they were charged anyway, just based on a tip. And in the court, they they didn't want to be represented by uh, a lawyer, they wanted to represent themselves. And they just said, yes, we spank our children, and they gave the scriptural reasons why they did it. And they, they weren't able to defend themselves. They gave their opinions, but they didn't appeal to a single law. And the judge was frustrated by the whole thing because the judge wanted to side with them, but according to the court procedures, he couldn't. 
And that may be a poor illustration, but what I want to say is if you don't appeal to God's laws, if you don't appeal in your prayers to the arguments that are given in the Scripture, don't expect justice. God has bound himself by his justice to handle his court procedures according to his word. And so we need to fill our mouths with arguments from the Scriptures, his promises, his character, his laws. Anything, any argument we can get from the Scripture, he delights in. He says, yes, bring it on. That's the kind of court case I like to answer. Okay? So before we even get into them, uh, I, I thought I'd better make that, that point. Now, his first reason is this. <clears throat> Look at verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Now, this is, this is just an incredible encouragement. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. God does not take pleasure in the wickedness that is happening in our culture, the wickedness that has happened against you, that you are all frustrated about. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. So this God is not a God who could care less. There's a God who's upset. He wants justice on your behalf, but you need to be pleading for justice. You need to be following the court procedures in order to get that. It's just the way justice works, any justice. A judge can't just mete out things, you know, if no evidence is brought. He has to go according to the laws of evidence. But let's just think about the fact that God takes no pleasure in wickedness because I think this could be a tremendous motivation to persevere in these ki- this kind of praying. The Scripture declares that God's pleasure is to see righteousness fill the earth. God's pleasure is to see Satan vanquished. Luke 12, verse 32 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isaiah 53, 10 prophesies of Christ's victory. And it says that the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand And then he immediately goes on to say how it's going to prosper in God's hand or or in Jesus' hand. Here's how it's going to prosper. It's through the prayers of the saints. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. See, God's pleasure is that the knowledge of him fill the earth as the waters cover the ocean bed. His pleasure is that righteousness goes forth as a lamp in the earth. That's his pleasure. Isaiah 42 is a messianic psalm, which Jesus, I think it's in Luke 4. I'd have to look it up, but I think it's in Luke 4 where Christ quotes it. And he says, this is beginning to be fulfilled in my life. But in that messianic psalm, it says of Jesus, he will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. When you are asking for justice, you are asking for exactly what God has prophesied will eventually happen. You are asking for exactly what he desires to bring forth. You are asking for his pleasure, not just your own pleasure, and you can have the absolute confidence this is something worthy of bringing before God. I don't need to worry whether God's going to answer or whether he's not going to to answer. It is the church, not God, that is holding back justice according to Isaiah 62. Read that chapter sometime and you will see it. James says, you have not because you ask not. Now, obviously, God's the one who stirs up the church to pray, right, and to provide all those means as well. But ultimately, don't think you're going to get your case answered in heaven if you are not presenting your case uh, to the Lord. Okay, he goes on to say, oh, but this is supposed to be an encouragement, not an exhortation. Okay. (laughs) He loves to do it. He loves to do it, so don't be discouraged. Second reason that he gives in verse 4 nor shall evil dwell 
God does not have desires that evil is going to have rights to be around all of the time. It does not have squatter's rights, it doesn't have settler's rights, it doesn't have any kind of rights, right? God wants evil to be out of this world. And we can appeal to God's total intolerance and to his total reluctance to let evil camp out as we bring our case before heaven. You know how discouraging it is for some pro-lifers to go before a judge who knows, we know already, is set against them, prejudiced against them. Very, very discouraging. What we're saying here is God is for you. He loves to bring justice, and, and uh, he desires to do so. And so we're praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it done in heaven? Well, now, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, there, was inju- there was Satan was up there, you know, accusing the brethren. Satan's been cast out of heaven, and everything in heaven happens according to his will. He's praying that that's going to be the situation on earth, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a cool prayer. Okay, David then appeals to God's holy presence. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Now think of what happens even to boastful people when they are confronted with a theophany of God. They fall on the ground almost like dead men, don't they? They are so frightened. And yet, what David is saying is, God, you have said your glory fills the earth. Here are people who are blind to your glory, who are so boastful and who are so proud that they defy you to your face, and the evidence that you don't even exist is you're not doing anything in, your, in their lives. And so I am asking, O oh God, that you would cause your power to be displayed in their lives so that they could not deny that you exist, that they could not stand in your presence, that their pride would be humbled just as Nebuchadnezzar's pride was humbled. Okay, God's hatred. Now, this is something that makes some Christians nervous. That's right there, flat out in the, in the psalm, verse 5. You hate all workers of iniquity. Doesn't just say he hates their sin. He hates the workers of the iniquity. Now, why is this such an encouragement when we come in prayer? It's because this judge, uh, he despises the very person that has been persecuting you. Okay, He hates all workers of iniquity, and so God is very motivated to do something on your behalf. And by the way, if God did not hate the workers, he would not have cast workers into hell. Hell is a very sorry way of showing love to somebody. Okay, That is God's hatred being displayed. Now, God does not have malice in his heart, but it's the actions of hatred. It's the actions of hatred. And if God did not hate sinners in the way in which he did, then we would have no hope of evil eventually being destroyed. The only thing that God is waiting for is to make sure he's got the motivation. He is stirring up the same passion in his people to hate what God hates and to love what God loves. Now, I I didn't even plan to talk about this, but that immediately came to my mind. Well, does that mean that we can hate Uh, people aren't we supposed to love our enemies isn't that a contradiction Phil so let me just quickly address that David says do not I hate those who hate you O Lord yes I hate them with a perfect hatred do you do you love Satan you love demons see the confusion that comes for us is when it comes to humans we don't know yet who is elect and who is not elect who's going to be saved who is not going to be saved. We are to be kind to, and we are to love 
our enemies and we are never to have malice in our hearts we're never to have bitterness in our heart because bitterness is something defiles us and it defiles other people we are to show forgiveness in our heart even to those who despitefully use us we're to bless those who despitefully use us and persecute us but there are jurisdictional areas uh, where sometimes there's what um, Sidlow Baxter spoke of as ostensible hate did you know Jesus commanded us to hate people He also commanded us to love our enemies. How in the world can you reconcile those two? Well, Sidlow Baxter says it's ostensible hatred. What you are doing, uh, let me just give an, an example, and I shouldn't be rambling off on things I hadn't even prepared because the service is already too long, but uh, now that I've dug myself into a hole here, I, I do need to deal with this one, right? You've got, it says, he who does not hate father and mother wife and children for my sake in the gospel he can't even be his disciple you can't even be a christian unless you hate and so how in the world do we reconcile that because we're called to love our husband our wives our children and i think it can be reconciled when you realize that in our hearts we are not to show malice toward nor nor are we to show any ungodly actions toward and yet christ has told us to Let's do a, a given thing. Right, let, let's start, just start with Christianity. There's a, let's make it a Jewish family or a Muslim family or something, and one of the people in the family becomes a Christian. And the family starts screaming at them and saying, you've thrown away generations of uh, family history when you have become a Christian. What is the matter with you? Do you hate us? No, I don't hate you. Well, then why did you become a Christian? You've got to choose. It's either Christ or you love us. And he says, well, I do love you. I don't want to have to choose. And they put the situation in such a degree that your only choice is ostensible hatred. Ostensible means it appears to be hatred because your actions are different than what they would expect from somebody that loves them. But see, our love is defined by God and by God's word. And we can love them just as David loved Saul and desired that Saul would become a Christian. And yet what did David pray? He prayed what theists think of as hateful psalms. So how in the world can we pray those kinds of psalms against our enemies? Well, David prayed it against his son Absalom. Remember how he almost lost the kingdom to jo jo uh, um, Joab. Joab said, look, if you don't get over this quickly, you're going to lose the kingdom today. You know, you almost lost it under Absalom, but you're going to lose. It was a threat. You know, I'm going to side with somebody else if you don't get over this because you have so mistreated us in honoring Absalom and weeping over him, and you don't care anything about all the people who have lost their lives for you. You are showing hate, he said, Joab said, to those who have been your friends, and you are showing love to your enemy. Okay? And so this is a complex thing, but David, when he was righteous and when he was walking rightly with God, he could love his enemies and do his utmost with Saul. I mean, he pleaded with Saul to... He had an opportunity to kill him. He cut off the robe of his garment. But he still prayed God's judgments down upon these people. Now let me tell you something else that might help to clear your conscience on this. God can cause the imprecations, the curses of those psalms to fall upon your enemy in one of two ways. First way is Jesus bears that curse, which they deserve. I mean, you cannot say that people do not deserve the curses in these psalms. Jesus bears that curse in his body in their place and they become a christian 
So you, the curses are cast on him. Or secondly, they're taken out. And either way, God is glorified. The kingdom is advanced. You're relieved of the pressures that you have come under. And you've still shown love to that individual. So you can hate and you can love at the same time. It's, it's an odd thing, but it's ostensible hate. And read Sidlo Baxter. There's an essay by him that I, I think explains it uh, rather well. And since I wasn't even thinking about talking about it, where did we get up to? Hatred. Okay. Verse 6, appeals to the fact that God is continually judging. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. And so the fact God is a God of judgment, that's good reason to go to court and ask him for restitution. Next one, David appeals to God's feelings of revulsion. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Uh, and those three verses, I think, remove any doubt that God does not care about victory over evil in America. In our prayers, we do not come with an I hope so. We must come, not with wishful thinking, we must come with faith. Why? Because faith, a, a prayer that has doubt will not be answered. And Satan's going to do everything he can to make you doubt whether or not this is even legitimate to bring before God. It's got to come through faith. And, and, and so this is what Spurgeon meant when he said, God the Holy Ghost writes our prayers, God the Son presents our prayers, and God the Father accepts our prayers, and with the whole Trinity to help us in it, what cannot prayer perform? When your prayers are written with the court's known desire, you can come with total confidence. Now there's another condition that we need to take account of. We must demonstrate that we have rightful claims to God's uh, protection. Now, first of all, there's the jurisdictional issue of um, whether or not we're, you know, even have the right to go to God's court. When we've got to be Christians, God's not going to listen to the prayer for justice from uh, 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 from a non-Christian. But there are other things that are needed as well, uh, and I should have put that point in there, jurisdictional. But verse seven speaks of his connection, his accountability to a body. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercies. Lord, I am under the jurisdiction of your court. I'm a member of your house. And that's why I'm coming to you with this request. Now, if you examine the scriptures I've placed in your outlines there, you will notice that being cast out of the church is to be handed over to Satan. It's a jurisdictional issue. You're no longer under the protective canopy of the covenant. And believers, according to 2 Corinthians, this guy that was excommunicated, he was in the kingdom of Satan, even though Paul knew he was regenerate. He was a true believer and actually ended up repenting. That's the purpose of discipline, repenting, coming back into the church. But if you're not a member of the church, you're outside of the protective canopy of the covenant, which means you can't ask for anything. You are totally under the jurisdiction of Satan. Now, it doesn't mean it. It doesn't matter whether you were excommunicated and it wasn't something that the church itself uh, put you out. If you put yourself outside of the church, you are outside of the protective canopy of the covenant. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. And I encourage you to study those, uh, those, th those scriptures. Psalm 76, 1 through 3 says that it's in the congregation that God grants victory and vengeance. Psalm 133 says it's in the unity of the church. God commands his blessing. Psalm 134 shows it's in God's house. He gives his blessing. And there are many, many other scriptures that I didn't include in the outline indicating being members of the church. In fact, I've got a booklet that deals with it. But being members of the church is so important. Secondly, have we confessed our sins and received God's mercy that verse 7 refers to? See, apart from his mercy in our lives, we are powerless against Satan. Proverbs 28:13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Ephesians 4, verse 27 indicates when you do not confess your sins, you give an advantage 
to Satan in your life. In fact, unconfessed sins give, give Satan legal rights to not leave you and not be able to be resisted. Gives him total legal rights. Now, I told you about Tommy Titcombs, a total lack of power in casting out a uh, demon out of this uh, one woman. They were doing, um, you know, a levitation, a group of people that were over. And he, he walks up and, you know, tries to cast the demon out and instead feels the demons grabbing him around the throat and throwing him back. And he is so confused and, and thinking, Lord, what are you doing here? They're going to think that Satan is more powerful than you are. And instantly, just like that, the Holy Spirit once again faithfully brought his conviction into his heart of a sin that he was holding on to and he was not willing to repent of. He dealt with that sin. He went back. He had the power to cast out demons. And I have seen this over and over again in my ministry that people lack power because they have held on to confession. Sometimes it's been very boldly manifested. I remember going to one, uh, one house. I was asked to deal with the demonic and uh, this lady's uh, life. And as I was driving toward the house, the husband told me later, as I was driving toward the house, somehow she knew I was coming, and she kept saying, Pastor Kaiser is coming, and screaming, keep him away, keep him away. And the closer I got to the front door, uh, the more wild she got, throwing up violently. And when I walked in through the door, I commanded the demons to be quiet in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to free her mind, and to let her uh, be able to talk. And I was able to then talk with her. She was calmed down, and uh, we discovered there were sins in her life that she had uh, given Satan jurisdiction in. And I told her what was happening in her life. I told her she needed to cleanse those sins out of her life, or she was not going to have success. She was willing to uh, confess three of those sins. And the fourth one, she wrestled, and she finally says, no, I'm not going to repent of that sin. And instantly, the demons came over, and there was nothing I could do in her life. You're giving Satan jurisdiction when you do not confess the, the sins in your lives. And Scripture indicates if you have unresolved anger in your household, you give Satan legal rights. According to Ephesians 4, it says, it uses the term, you've given him a foothold. He's got his foot in the door, and you're asking God, Lord, get rid of Satan. He's in here. He's bringing oppression. He's bringing all kinds of troubles. God says, sorry, he's got a legal right. And Satan's going to say, God, I don't have to leave, do I? He's given me a legal right to be here. And God says, yep, he's given you a legal right to be there. When you have bitterness in your heart that has been unresolved, you say, I have a right to be bitter. This person's been so wicked against me. God says, Satan has a legal right in your life. When you have rebellion in your family that you are not dealing with, the Scripture says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That means you've got witchcraft going on in your life. You think you don't have legal rights in your home? Children, you, your rebellion in your home can completely open up the home to satanic attack. He's got the legal right to mess around with that home until you put it under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you need to take rebellion seriously, parents. You need to take lying seriously. I see parents who look at rebellious children who defy them, and they don't do anything, or they put them on timeout, or they scold them. No, they need a spanking. What I'm trying to get across is there are sins that give Satan legal rights that if you don't deal with those, forget about bringing your court case to heaven. Have I repeated enough times? <laughs> okay. Now, People say, 
but I got so many sins. It's hopeless. I'll never be able to bring any court case to heaven. I got a multitude of sins. Well, don't be discouraged. David had a multitude of sins as well. If you look at verse 7, he says he needed a multitude of mercies, which implies what? He has a multitude of sins, right? The multitude of sins has nothing to do with whether or not you could be effective in your attacks against Satan. What matters are, are you holding on to those sins or have you confessed them? The moment you sin, you need to get back up again. You've stumbled down, you get back up and you say, Lord, I hate this sin. I confess this sin. I put it under the blood of Christ. I don't want to sin anymore. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. And when you have done that, there is not a thing that Satan can do. He cannot hold that against you. And so, in fact, I, I want you to turn with me to Zechariah 3 because this is a critically important concept to lay hold of, of how sin can totally destroy our effectiveness in our prayer life. Now, let me give you the context of Zechariah chapter 3. This is a, this is a great passage. <clears throat> in Ezra and Nehemiah, which is the context of when this happened, Ezra and Nehemiah were receiving unbelievable opposition from people outside, from people inside. There was intrigue. There was sin. Satan was doing everything he could to mess things up. Now, in Ezra and Nehemiah, he gives the outward, what is visible. But they know they're not wrestling just with flesh and blood. They're wrestling with principalities. They're wrestling with powers. And Zechariah 3, and some other passages in here as well, talk about the, the angelic warfare that is going on. Now, let's, let's just read this together. Zechariah chapter 3, and let's begin at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And so here is Jesus, uh, Joshua standing before the pre-incarnate uh, Son of God. The pre-incarnate Son of God is Joshua's lawyer. And he, by the way, has always acted as our advocate and as our lawyer, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. But notice who else is in this courtroom. So he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? He is saying that Joshua the high priest, even though he is a godly, mature man, he deserves to go to hell. He deserves hellfire, and he is a brand that was plucked from the fire by God. Okay. Um, going on. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now this is symbolic of his ongoing sin that was in his life, that polluted his life, and Satan is using that sin as legal ground as to why he can continue to oppose uh, Joshua, why he can be at Joshua's right hand. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why we continually, every day, need to put on the righteous garments of Christ, put on his armor. In Ephesians chapter 6, he is not talking to unbelievers. He is talking to believers who have already been saved, but he says, you don't just put on the helmet of salvation once and then you're done with it. You don't put on the breastplate of righteousness just once. Every day you need that helmet of salvation. Every day you need that righteousness. And if you don't have it, you are vulnerable to Satan's arrows that he throws at you. And so he's saying the same thing here. Joshua every day needs to come because he's going to be opposed by Satan. And he needs that armor. He needs the clothing of Christ. He needs that righteousness put on him. Verse 4, going on. Then he answered and he spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. 
and the angel of the Lord stood by. Once Joshua was cleansed, once he was given the garments of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's covered with, this is just a different image than the armor that's in Ephesians 6, but it's the same thing. He's clothed with Christ's provisions. There is not a thing that Satan can do to oppose him. Instead, he's got God right there. God is going to answer his prayers. God is going to give provisions. <coughs> and nothing is going to hinder his plea. Now, I think we dive into warfare prayer all too quickly. There are some people that I know who have gone into confrontations with demons utterly unprepared, and they have become demonized, and it's taken them months to get rid of the demons because they knew nothing about spiritual warfare prayer. But there's nothing you need to worry. If you follow these principles and you come cleansed, you come. By the way, one of the prayers in that warfare booklet is a prayer that teaches you how to put on each piece of that armor. Just pray it through. Pray it out loud. And it teaches you how to put on each piece of that armor on, on your life so that you don't go into battle unprepared. So come confessing your sins. Come cleansed in his blood. Point three emphasizes our attitude in court. And we've dealt with this some um, about, you know, if we have the wrong attitude. But it, it's not entirely to the point here. But worship really is first and foremost an attitude but it's outward actions as well and there is a solid connection between our worship and our victory over satan and you know when i was doing this i, I could have put a whole pile more uh verses there but read second chronicles 20 sometime why is it that god had people worship when they went into physical battle he wanted them by faith to look to his resources and to realize even though we're bringing the sword, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And Jehoshaphat, in Second Chronicles 20, he looks at all of these, these armies out there, vastly outnumbered, and he says, the Lord is for us. And they're going in, rejoicing in the victory of the Lord, praising him, worshiping him, and God destroys that entire army without Joshua, Jehoshaphat even lifting one finger. Now, he doesn't always do that. A lot of the battles, we, they lost fingers, okay? They went into battle, and they were, they were fighting. But the point is that um, uh, worship is definitely connected to Satan conquering power. Point uh, four is important as well. It's sometimes difficult to know exactly how to pray in some situations. And the Spirit's intercession and his guidance is very, very important. And so David, therefore, prays for guidance. If you look at verse 8, <coughs> whoops. Here we go, verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Lead me, O Lord. Now, we need both subjective leading and we need objective leading. This is the objective leading of the Lord, right? Something you can read, it's outside there. The subjective leading is something that, you know, it's not infallible, but we do need both. Objective uh, leading of the Lord, Revelation 12:11 says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And we need God's leading and knowing exactly how to bring which scriptures to bear in our battles. Christ, you know, it's just phenomenal. The way he would bring just the right scripture to resist Satan and the temptations uh, that were given to him. Leading can be subjective as well. You know, sometimes we may be going into battle in a given direction, maybe in our prayer life, and we have a check in our spirit. And we, we feel uncomfortable about pursuing that. Well, it may be that the Spirit of God is directing us in, in a d different direction. Maybe the timing is not right, or maybe, uh, maybe there's something about that person's going to be coming to Christ, and we, God wants to go a little easier on that person. And, and so we need to be sensitive to that as well. Colossians 
3, 15 through 16, goes both the subjective and the objective. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That's the subjective. Then he goes on, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And, and, and that's protective. We need that. We need that guidance. And then the last claim to God's protection is promised providence. David continues in verse 8, saying, make your way straight before my face. And we can claim God's many promises that he will keep us from stumbling. My favorite is Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. He says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What we are doing in our prayers is we are laying claim to the able and saying, Lord, make it so in my life. Keep me from stumbling. And then by faith, going out, and trusting God's going to make the straight way straight before me this day so that I don't need to stumble. Okay, point C shows that we need to make the effort to clearly identify the ways in which the accused has violated God's laws. And th- where the previous points we've looked at are our weak points that we've got to shore up, these are the enemy's weak points. So find out what the enemy's weak points are. And... practically compelled with delete to contend that there is something satanic about their sin, unquote. And so the Hebrew indicates it's, it's something more than that they've got a destructive attitude. No, there's something inside of them that is leading to destruction. And delete uh, translates it. He says there's a double meaning there, but he translates it this way. Their inward part is a yawning abyss. Now in the scripture, yawning abyss is hell, Right? He says, they got hell inside of them. And likewise, their throat is an open tomb. What's coming out of their throat is the stench of death itself. And just as James speaks of the tongue being a world of iniquity set on fire by hell itself, verse 9 indicates that the smooth flatteries of these people was moved by some inner malevolent evil. Now, I should point out, David does it in such a way where he does not let the people off the hook. They're still blameworthy. They can't say, oh, the devil made me do it. I'm not responsible. No, even if they're demon-possessed, they're the ones who, first of all, deliberately, willfully gave Satan legal ground to come into their lives to control them. They cannot get off the hook. So even though we don't have free will in an absolute sense, we are free moral agents. We are accountable to God. It's our fault when we give foothold to Satan. When Christ bound the power of Satan in one man's life, he commanded the man. See, he's a Christian. He's talking. He commanded the man, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. So these people, they've freely been engaging in sin. Satan takes advantage. He binds them. And that, I think, is what Satan is talking about. There's a stronghold in their life. One of the strongholds is lying. He says, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. And you've probably known people who grieve them, but they keep finding themselves lying. I mean, why am I lying? It may be demonically motivated. I, I, I've known people who don't know, really, when they're telling the truth and when they're lying. They're so accustomed to lying. And the self-deception is so strong. It's just a part of that. It's a stronghold in their life. The other one that is mentioned there, (coughs) their inward part is destruction. And the the destruction that is is there, you've, you've probably met people who even destroy the relationships that they love. And they kick themselves afterwards. But it just seems to come out of them. It's a stronghold. To be built. In fact, that's one of the descriptions in Proverbs of the foolish woman 
it says that she tears down her household. You know, she can't see the incredible blessings that God has put into her life. All she does is she bickers and gnats and tears down and shows all of the things that are wrong, and she's being used by Satan to tear down instead of to build up. Anyway, I've gone down way too many rabbit trails today. So does it open to the splatter with the time? Verse 5. Okay, so verse 9 is listing the problems. Verse 10 tears them down. So let's go to Roman numeral 3. Next step that David does is to specify the judgment that he was seeking, and a lawyer does that in the courtroom, doesn't he? he David says, pronounce them guilty, O God. If you don't ask for a guilty pronouncement, you're failing to plead your case in court. The passage I read in Zechariah has the pre-incarnate Son of God saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Jude 9 says that even Michael the archangel resisted Satan by saying, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, God's rebukes, God's judgments, God's pronouncements have a power to make the enemy do whatever God wants that enemy to do. And so we're asking, Lord, we need your pronouncements. My pronouncements are not enough. Even though if you bring the pronouncements of God's word, it can have a real power. I think in one of the sermons before, uh, I, I read from, mm, what was the guy? It's the guy that's been involved in, in uh, dealing with the demonic, but he said it was the strangest thing, this guy running in and, and asking for help and then suddenly being overcome by these, these demons and, and, and menacing him. And every time he would quote the scripture, greater is he who is in me than he was in the world, this guy would be thrown back against the wall. And he was so puzzled, he asked this guy, once the demon was cast out, he asked him what had happened. And he says, I, uh, I, I felt controlled by these demons. And every time that I was coming to attack you, there was this incredibly strong force that hit me. And it was every time that he gave the word. So God was even there tangibly showing the power of his word. It's a living word, powerful, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. But especially, we're talking about the pronouncements from his throne. Lord, make a declaration from your throne right now and settle this issue once and for all. Okay, let's move on. I'll skip over all that. Next step. David um, asks God to bind and frustrate their purposes. Verse 10 goes on to say, let them fall by their own counsels. And actually, it's, it's more than just frustrating their purposes. He's asking God to take them out, Okay. Next, David asked God to destroy their ability to rebel. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Now, whether he's asking them to be cast out of the synagogue or out of Israel or just cast out of his life, we don't know. But he's, he's saying, Lord, I, I, just, I need these people out of the way because it's hindering me from advancing your cause. <clears throat> and so, again, we just can say the curse can fall on Christ or it can fall on the individual, but either way, they need it. They need it. They need to be changed. They need to be changed. I knew a pastor who applied this even uh, within the realm of professing believers. Um, and I think it's appropriate. Christ did that. Paul did that. Uh, he engaged in this kind of uh, warfare, tearing down every stronghold and uh, saying that he would come with the rod, you know, when he came. But anyway, this pastor was resisted at every point by an individual in, in his congregation, and it just was frustrating, the ministry. And he, did, he couldn't do anything about it because the guy was clever enough to keep from coming under discipline. And he finally cried out to the Lord and took his case before God and says, I, don't, I can't get justice down here below, but this person is being used by Satan. He's utterly hindering the ministry. Lord, make your declaration of guilty and make your declaration that this person will not be able to resist me one more time. The next meeting that he came up, this guy stood up and started resisting and within a minute fell to the ground with a heart attack dead. 
Um, and I've, I've talked to another pastor who's done this more than once in his, in his congregation because Satan can even come as an angel of light through people who are professing believers. And so it does have wide-ranging applications, not just to getting back money that's been, be, been, been taken from you. Next, David asked for a protection order. Okay, well, that's what I read into the verse there anyway. Verse uh, 11 and 12. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. And there's the defense after, uh, there. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Lord, we don't want to spend all of our time with controversies and having to fight this person and fight that person. Father, I pray that you would just remove this so that I can concentrate on a positive ministry. Put a protection order on them, Lord. I don't want them touching me anymore. I want to be able to engage in the positive. It's sort of what he is saying. And then David uh, asked for a blessing, joy and blessings of compensation. Now, in some psalms, he actually specifies what kinds of compensation that he wants. Here, he seems to be willing to let God decide. And so that's appropriate, I guess, to say, okay, God, you, you know your justice, uh, whether it's twofold or fourfold. I just know that um, uh, what I've presented here before you, uh, in your good providence, you will do that which is right. But he says, for you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. So either way, fine. And then he ends this psalm with a total assurance that since God is the God of justice, God is going to answer. Never doubt God's justice. That's what I've been trying to pump into the last two Sundays. Justice for God is not just an eternity. It is in history. Never doubt God's justice because the moment you begin to doubt, your prayers will not be answered. And that's exactly where Satan wants you. Exactly where Satan wants you. You need to be like Martin Luther. Even when the whole world seemed to be against him, he was able to stand firm on God's behalf. You know, a mighty fortress. We probably should have sung a mighty fortress at the end of the song, but we're going to sing an imprecatory psalm after it. But a mighty fortress, what a powerful testimony of faith in what God can do. But look at verse 11 again. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. <clears throat> Job 5 verse 22 speaks of the ability of faith to laugh in the face of adversity. That doesn't mean he's enjoying himself. He's able to say, I know the outcome of this thing and I'm going to win. He's laughing in the face of adversity. We're not saying he's enjoying it because he starts the psalm by groaning, right? So there's groaning, but it can be compatible with being joyful. Uh, what does Christ say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, okay? But it's also a secure faith. Not just a rejoicing faith, it's a secure faith. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With your favor, you will surround him as with a shield. All it takes is a Martin Luther to make all the difference in the world. And we are in a generation where there are homeschoolers and there are others who are standing up as Martin Luther's and are making a difference in our culture. And I want to encourage you to try to frame in the eyes of your children, frame in the eyes of yourselves, what is it that God has placed me here for? God has put you in the kingdom for such a time as this. And what is it that I can take a stand on? What is it that I can be used by to advance his cause? And I want to challenge you to put into practice the truths from last week, this week. Stop being defensive. Stop being defensive. Start going after Satan, claiming back the money he has robbed from you, claiming back the health he has taken from you, claiming back, you know, the children that he has robbed and other things that he has robbed. Go on the defensive and make uh, it a reputation with demons 
that this is not a church that Satan dares mess with because every time he does, he gets even less. He gets more robbed out of his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's go to the Lord. Father God, we delight in you. We delight in you. You are such a great provider. You not only <coughs> you not only tell us about justice, you show us how to do the justice. And I pray, Father, you would forgive us for our ignorance and understanding your word and applying your word in life. Father, every person in this room has probably had things that Satan has robbed from them. And I pray that you would... Uh, uh, give wisdom to them as they begin to build their cases and as they begin to take uh, Satan and his demons uh, to your courtroom. But we delight and we bless you, Father, for the privilege of uh, being able to stand before your justice, the promise you have given in Luke 18, that you will avenge us speedily. Blessed be your name, Father. We come and we end out the service by singing one of the psalms that you have ordained of calling down curses against the enemies of your church. And Father, we use this and want to join with those in Sudan. We want to join with those in, in, in China and in Mongolia and many other places where they have come under incredible attack. And Father, we know we cannot directly bring that, but Father, as their cries go up, we join with them as witnesses that it is our desire to see justice done in their lives. And Father, may the blood of the martyrs indeed be the seed of the church. And Father, may there be children and children's children to such an extent that even the uh, Christians of our day, like the uh, Israelites of old, are outnumbering the Egyptians. Father, may you uh, cause the church to enter into the glory that you have ordained. Cure her and purify her, Father, from the miserable uh, situation that she is in. This psalm, Father, we, we, we grieve and, 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 and we are sorry for the broken down walls and the ways in which the vine of Israel has been torn by boars, and we've allowed it to be so, Father. And there is so much sin in our midst that we, 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 we put that under the blood of Christ as well. But I pray that you would make the church to be a powerful church, powerful not in our own strength, but powerful in your spirit. And we just give you the glory as we end out this, this uh, service by singing this song. In Jesus' name, amen.